If you have a copy of God's Word, let's open up to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. We're in the midst of a long study through this gospel account. We took a short break during the Advent season and then with Daniel coming and guest preaching last week. But now we're back into John. Again, if you have no idea where the Gospel of John is, that's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents. There's a pew Bible there in front of you if you'd like to use that or however you like to access it. I'll be reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. Whatever version you have is fine. I'd rather you read the one that you have. Remember, you can look, you'll go into the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were in the Gospel accounts. So the whole Old Testament says, someone's coming, someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels say, someone's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says, someone's coming again. Who is that someone? The Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John right now in the Gospels. So we're looking at his life and work and ministry, soon to be his death and resurrection. And so we've just been tracing this book through verse by verse as we do. And if you would like to get caught up or go find any others, just let you know we do have a podcast available. They also have Sermon Archive available on our website if you'd like to get caught up with what we're doing on John. And so while you're opening up to John 16, we're going to look, starting in verse 5 is going to be where our, our uh, passage starts this morning, although we're going to start reading in verse 1 just as kind of a little refresher for us from a couple of weeks ago. And while you're opening up there, you may have heard the phrase, probably you have, the phrase, I'm doing this for your own good. Maybe you've heard that before. You know, I'm doing this for your own good. You know, we, we may have heard that from like parents or teachers or coaches or somebody. You know, hey, I'm, I'm doing this for your own good. And if we're honest, we're all a bit skeptical when we hear it. Because why? More often than not, basically, we think for your own good actually means for my own good at your expense. And so we've kind of grown skeptical when we hear that phrase. But sometimes when we, do, when we do hear that phrase, sometimes it actually is for our own good. And so you may, like here's an example. I know you don't want to do your homework, but you need to do it. Why? It's for your own good. You know, sometimes it is good for us to do those things. There was an example that I had um, that I was thinking about when I was thinking about for your own good and what, how we fight against it. Uh, there's a character named Ron Swanson on the uh, show Parks and Rec, which is absolutely hilarious if you've never watched it before. And Ron Swanson is like this ruggedly individualistic, like American kind of guy. And he starts feeling sick and he goes to see his doctor and um, he finds out that his potassium levels are low. And this is a guy that like eats steak all the time and you know, and he basically looks at the doctor and he's like, look, I'm gonna, I eat what I eat. This is the guy that the doctor was trying to do like the inspection in his ear, you know, where he's looking. He's like, it looks like your ear's blocked. And Ron tells him, no, just blow it, sawdust. And so he blows his ear and the sawdust comes out. He's like, that kind of guy. He said, I eat what I eat, I do what I do. And he tells him that his potassium levels are low and all he says is just eat a banana every now and then. That's all you got to do. Nurse Ann Perkins comes in says, Ron, just eat a banana every now and then. It's not going to kill you. You've got a family now. Do it for your, it's for your own good. It's for the good of your family. And there's a funny scene where all he has to do is eat a banana. That's all he's got to do. And every time he raises the banana, he kind of gags because he can't do it. And so he paces around the office. You can see him like beating his chest, like working himself up the courage to eat a banana. And eventually what you see is he leaves the office and he comes back with a, a bag from the local fast food restaurant. He takes what looks like a bacon cheeseburger, 
splits the banana in half, mashes it down between the burger, and then eats the burger. So he gets his banana in, sandwiched in between a bacon double cheeseburger, you know, for his own good. <laughs> you know, you, you think about what's going on here in this, in this gospel account. You're like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, I'll, hopefully it'll make sense in a minute. That a after a few weeks away from the Gospel of John, during our Advent season, we return to Jesus' upper room discourse. And this is teaching and encouragement from Jesus to his disciples before his oncoming arrest, betrayal, and death. And there is a constant theme throughout Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of John that Jesus calls his own out of the world and they recognize his voice as their true shepherd. We see that theme throughout. You know, Jesus calls, they recognize his voice, get a long teaching about that. And this is a message of grace for those like us who have fallen short of God's holy standard. And God continues to call spiritually dead sinners to himself. And we say, thank you, Lord, that you do that. Theologically, we call this sovereign election, effectual calling, and regeneration. This work of God's Spirit. Romans 8, 28-29 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is really helpful on that. But as we see that consistent teaching of Jesus calling his own out of the world and they recognizing his voice, there's another consistent theme throughout the Gospel of John. And that is, if you identify with Jesus, the world's going to hate you. The world hates Jesus, or he says, I'm the Son of God. And they hate him for it. And that if we ourselves identify with Jesus and his claim to be the unique Son of God, then the hate of the world is going to come. Chapter 15, verse 25, that we talked about several weeks ago, said that they might often hate you even without a cause, as they hated Jesus. And a few weeks ago, November the 21st, if you want to go back and listen, Jesus told his disciples and us that we should not be surprised by the world's hatred and opposition. Jesus said in John 15, 18 to 19, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Here's what Keddie said in his commentary. He had several very helpful quotes here that I'll mention this morning. He said, If they had not been told honestly about the difficulties ahead, but would have been allowed to think everything would go smoothly and painlessly, and then were suddenly confronted with the real truth, they could be scandalized and lose all hope in the mission. Jesus was quite open about the prospects. Jesus never promised anybody a rose garden, end quote. Now in chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, we saw a couple of weeks ago that opposition will also come from within the religious community for preaching Christ, Him crucified, and being faithful to the Scriptures. We still see it today. I even saw a meme kind of spread around. I guess it was like a picture of John MacArthur. And it was, he was basically saying like, here, if you want to do something that's really unpopular in the world, just have somebody stand up up front and really preach Christ and just be faithful to the Scriptures. That's all you got to do to raise the ire of the world. And you think about, we still see this opposition to preaching Christ, Him crucified, and being faithful within the bounds of the religious community. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Dead, moralistic religion hates the gospel of grace because it takes the emphasis off of our sinful, hardwired emphasis on earning and self-justification because the gospel tells us that we'll never be able to do it by ourselves. And moralistic religion hates that because it says, what do you mean I can't do it on my own? We say, you can't do it on your own. That's why you need Christ. 
On the other end of the equation, theological liberalism hates the truth lines drawn in the sand by the Scripture because it doesn't give us the wiggle room that we desire to define God on our own terms. It tells us that we need to submit to God on His terms. And so on the other end of the spectrum, it says, what do you mean that I don't get to shape and craft a God in my own image? What do you mean that I have to submit to Him and His Word? And so you see this opposition that's there on both sides. Dr. Michael Horton in his book, Christless Christianity, said, Regardless of the official theology held on paper, moralistic preaching, the bane of conservatives and liberals alike, assumes that we are not really helpless sinners who need to be rescued, but decent folks who need good examples, exhortations, and instructions. I've said over and over throughout the Gospel of John that we do not need a moral checklist. We do not need a God made in our own image. We need Christ We need Christ alone, and we look to Him. We don't look to ourselves. We don't look to a God fashioned in our own image. That's not what we need. We look to Jesus and Jesus alone. And so you can imagine this emphasis on Christ as Christ saying, look to me and follow me to His disciples. And you can imagine the shock that went through the upper room when Jesus told His disciples that He was going to leave them, and it was actually for their own good. And you think, what? How in the world does that make any sense? When Jesus says, follow me and stay close to me, but I'm going away. And it's actually for your own good. How does that make any sense? Let's find out. Let's look at John chapter 16. We'll start in verse 1. Let's give attention to the reading of God's holy word. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. It will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's help as we receive it by faith. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. And Father, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take these words and apply them to our hearts. Help us to receive them by faith as we look to you, O Jesus. Father, might you receive all glory. We pray and ask these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen. Now, back in the 1990s, another phrase appeared in hip-hop lyrics that has now become ubiquitous. Also, thanks in part to Taylor Swift's smash single from 2014, Yes, It's Been That Long, that hit is Shake It Off. 
There's this phrase that appeared, if you had a Taylor Swift reference on your sermon bingo card, there you go. The phrase is, haters gonna hate. You see that in early 90s hip-hop, haters gonna hate. Taylor said that, haters gonna hate. It's a catchphrase used to indicate a disregard for hostile remarks addressed towards the speaker. Taylor Swift says, haters are gonna hate, but I'm just gonna shake it off. And you think about, hopefully, you picked up that this morning's text is actually a contrast between the haters and the helper. That's our sermon title, if you weren't paying attention. You've hopefully picked up that there is a contrast that exists here between those two. And so, basically, the haters of God are going to hate. That's chapter 15, verse 8, through chapter 16, verse 4. The haters are just going to hate. But the helper's going to help. And the question is, how? How's that helper going to help? Three main, three main points this morning. He's going, to do two, he's going to do three main things. The helper will convict, the helper will guide, and the helper will glorify. That's what the helper's going to do. So let's look at that first point. The helper will convict, verses 5 through 11. Now, it's easy to discourage, to get discouraged when you face opposition for your faith. It's easy to get discouraged when your faith feels weak. And the disciples wrestle with, in, wrestle with this in verses 5 and 6. Jesus finishes teaching his reality. He gives this reality check about opposition and tells them that he's going to be leaving them soon. And as you can imagine, they get discouraged in the midst of that. They don't fully grasp the grandeur of what's about to happen to Jesus and the massive implications for the rest of the church in human history. And we still have a hard time grasping the future grandeur of what Christ has in store for us. We read these like future descriptions of heaven and we go, there's no way I can even comprehend that. And you see the disciples kind of wrestling with this. In verse 7, Jesus gave his disciples a peek behind the curtain. Look at what he says. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus promises that this helper, this paraclete, that's that word that we've used. Remember, the the paraclete's been referenced before in John's gospel. Jesus promised that this helper, this paraclete, is going to come after he left. And as we read this passage, did you notice that the entire Trinity is present? Do you notice that every member of the Trinity is present in this passage? The Son is speaking, and he references the Father and the Spirit as separate persons. And you think, so what? Why should I care? Aside from that being just an interesting tidbit in the Scripture, why should I care? Here's, here's why you should care. Our redemption is gloriously Trinitarian in its design. It's, it's Trinitarian in its design, its accomplishment, and its application. And all of it is by grace. Your salvation, the redemption of sinners like you and me, is gloriously Trinitarian when you think about it. The Father designed and mandated the work of redemption. He sent his son into the world to accomplish that task of redemption by living the righteous life that we could never do on our own and satisfying the righteous justice of God by dying in our place. And it is the task of the Holy Spirit sent by the Father and the Son to apply the work of Christ to our lives, gloriously Trinitarian in its view. You think about the entire Trinity 
is engaged in this work of redemption to reclaim lost sinners like you and me. It should take our breath away when you think about it. All of it in the heart of a triune God. Here's what Sproul said, speaking of Jesus. He said, Jesus was going to the right hand of God. It was far better for him to go there than to stay in Jerusalem. There he would be in a position of power. And one of his first acts would be to send the Holy Spirit to minister to the disciples. Now, our shorter catechism, question number 30, we did it several, several weeks ago now, asked the question, okay, how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? How's that work? This redemption that's been accomplished by Christ, how does the Spirit apply that work to our lives? Great question. Here's how it gets answered. It says, the Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by doing a couple of things. By working faith in us, and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Faith is worked in us. We are united to Christ. All of it under the work of this effectual calling. Where the Spirit is going and the voice of Christ goes out and is calling the sheep to Himself. We're called by the Spirit. We're regenerated by the Spirit. We're given faith by the Spirit. You think about the, the work of this helper, the work of this paraclete, the work of the Spirit. This work of the Spirit marks out the people of God. As we're conformed more and more to the image of Christ, and over time we look less and less like the world as we're conformed after the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, by His grace. Christ coming into the world and His claims to be the unique Son of God and the only Savior exposed what Matthew Henry called the great reigning sin, which is unbelief. You see this in Romans 1. For although they know that God exists, they in their unrighteousness suppress the truth about God. It's our universal condition in our sin. Unbelief shaking our fist. And again, here's what Keddy said. He said, that being the case, it's the Holy Spirit's mission to press home the world's sin despite the world's unbelief and convince people of their need of a Savior, their need to believe in Jesus Christ. It's the work of the Spirit, this conviction that we see, that we realize and recognize, maybe for the first time, that we are sinful. We have fallen short of a holy God. May have not even been on our radars ever before. Then all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's me. That's me. I need a Savior. I need help. The true gospel of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ in real space and time seals the defeat and condemnation of Satan and the empty tomb proves it. Look at verses 9 through 11 where the Spirit comes and convicts. It exposes the sin and rebellion of the world. It exposes self-righteousness and exposes the weakness of Satan, the enemy of God. Here's what Keddie said. He said, the world has backed a loser in going with Satan. It's a strong statement. The world has backed a loser when it decided to hitch its wagon to Satan because he's already doomed and cast out. The world made the wrong choice and its wrong judgment stands under the greater judgment of God. And you see the Spirit coming and convicting in this true gospel of Jesus Christ risen in real space and time. How do we see that it seals the fate of Satan? Because he walked out of the tomb. He walked out of the tomb and defeated, defeated sin, defeated Satan, defeated death itself. We just stand in awe of that. 
And so the question this morning as we think and we wrestle with this text and the work of the Spirit is, do you know this Savior? Are you united to Him by faith this morning through the work of the Spirit? Really? Or are you just going through the religious motions? Do you have a Savior? Have you come under Holy Spirit conviction of your sin and seen your need for repentance and your need for a Savior? Have you? Have you seen that? He's holy and I'm not. And that means I'm in deep trouble. And I come with grief and hatred of my sin. I see it for the first time that it grieves the heart of God and is an affront to His holiness. And I am an enemy of His under His wrath and I totally deserve it. And I'm sorry. And I need a Savior. Help me turn from that and turn to Christ. Is that part of your life? Has that gone on? Has the Spirit truly revealed your utter inadequacy before a holy God? But also, has the Holy Spirit revealed to you the beauty of Christ? Like we sing all these songs, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how he could love me. A sinner condemned and unclean. Oh, how marvelous. Because as the Spirit revealed to you the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christ, the vastness of his riches, the, just the immeasurable grace that he has removed us as far as the east is from the west, he's removed our sins from us. It's amazing when you think about it. Has this happened in your life? You see, we hear the word conviction and we typically think that it's a negative word, but it's actually a picture of grace. Hang with me. We hear conviction and we think bad. I actually think it's good. And here's why. Let me ask you a couple of questions. What if God had left you in your sin to perish and spend eternity apart from him? What if that conviction had not come? Where would you be now? What if God had left you thinking that you could still do it on your own? What if you had never come to a realization that, like, I need Jesus because I can't save myself? What if God just left you there? You'd still be swinging the hammer trying to do it all on your own by the sweat of your brow. Worn out, tired, thinking that you're your own savior. What if God had removed his spirit and let you actually thought what you, actually gave you what you really thought you needed and wanted? You know, the spirit convicts you sometimes. You're like, no, you don't need to do that. You're like, but I want to but you don't need to. What if God had removed his spirit from you and actually gave you what you really thought you needed and wanted? Where would your life be right now without the constraining power of this spirit guiding and directing you? You see, we think conviction and we think bad work, but it's actually a picture of grace because it's God actually guiding us, leading us, and protecting us from ourselves. Because if given the chance, we would throw ourselves out into oncoming traffic and not even think twice about it and smile the whole time we're doing it. And not realizing the wreckage that we're bringing. Aren't you thankful for the work of the Spirit? Aren't you thankful for the work of this helper who comes alongside you? It's a wonderful picture of grace. Again, Ketty said, The Spirit convicts in order to convert and reproves in order to redeem. And so if you are here and you are a Christian, you're here because the Spirit took away your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he gave it to you by sheer grace. 
took away that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and made you live by grace. Don't you see the gospel? It's amazing. Now it's the same spirit that empowers us to live under the banner of God's grace. It gives us the courage to share our faith. It reminds us of whose we are when our faith falters. We remember that we are in Christ when our faith feels weak. That we're united to Jesus. We're reminded of that. It gives us strength to persevere in faith until the end. But the work of the Spirit does not stop there. He convicts, but then the helper's going to guide. Last two points, way shorter than the first one, I promise. So point two, the helper's going to guide. Point one, the helper will convict will bring conviction of the world and its sin, but also in our own hearts, lead and guide. But now we see the helper's going to guide, verses 12 to 13. Look at verse 12. Did you pick up how Jesus reveals his heart for his disciples in the upper room? He understands their limitations and the weight of everything that he has just told them. And you see in in verse 12, he's like, okay, I've got some more that I want to say to you, but that's about all you can handle. You can't bear them right now. I'm just going to stop. Verse 13, Jesus tells the disciples and us that they're not going to be left alone to figure it all out. That this promised helper, this spirit of truth, as he is uh, referred to, will guide them into all truth. And all of the things that they could not bear in that moment would eventually be revealed to them. As God would work through this small band huddled in the upper room to write down his holy inspired, his spirit-inspired word, plant churches, lay the foundation that the present-day church is built upon. He said, you can't understand what I'm about to do with you, but you will. We are still taking part of that today. We are still under that work of the Spirit moving, laid upon the foundation of the apostles and those who have gone before us, guided by this Spirit-inspired Word. We're still about that work today, which is super encouraging when you think about it. And this guidance is still available today as we are led by the Spirit, helped in our prayers by the Spirit, sit under the preaching of God's Word, have that Word applied to our hearts and lives. We're driven deeper and deeper into the heart of God. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. If you abide in my Word and you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, how does that work? How, How are we set free? It says the You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How does that work? What's it mean to be set free? We know how the story ends, don't we? The things that are to come, as Jesus said. Think about this. At this moment, the disciples heard these words before the cross and the empty tomb. Where do we hear them today? We hear them on the other side of the cross with the reality of the empty tomb and the future promise of a new heaven and a new earth, and it gives us hope. And it gives us freedom because we live in this life knowing that we have a risen Savior. He is alive. And we trust in Him. And just as He said, guess what? I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to be put in the tomb. And I'm going to be there. But on the third day, I'm going to be raised from the dead. You think about the disciples. They're going, what are you talking about? We now stand on the other side of that, don't we? We look back and see, man, the cross really happened. Jesus really was buried in real space and time, and he rose in real space and time with eyewitnesses abounding and was 
He's resurrected and then ascended into heaven. And he said, I promise I'm coming back. And he's been faithful to that. Why would he not be faithful into the future? Think about this. We, we, like our faith is not just some cloud that's floating around there in the ether. Like It actually has real tangibility to it. We have a reasonable, solid, foundational faith that we cling to that has been born out in real history. And how could that not give us hope when life looks like a train wreck? <laughs> to say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. It's all true. One of my seminary professors told me that after decades of ministry and academic work in the Scripture, he had only scratched the surface. Think about that. This guy's been studying the Scripture in depth and ministering to people 40, 50 years. And he says, I have just come to the realization I barely even scratched the surface. What a humbling thing to say, but beautiful all at the same time. It's so deep and wide, and we have no idea what God is up to these days. We've only scratched the surface. And so how do, why should we care? What that does is it sets us free to learn and to grow and to love and to serve and to pray and to worship, and it sets us free because we know how the story ends. We know, where, we know how it ends. And so it sets us free to live a Christian life and have joy. I've never understood grumpy, reformed Presbyterians. Like, what are y'all grumpy about? Like, we trust in the sovereignty of God. Our guy wins in the end. Like, what are y'all grumpy about? We believe that God is providential over all things. We have joy in this life. Why? Because our king's alive. Because Jesus is alive. What are we so grumpy about? Why are y'all so grumpy? Stop. There's, think about what God has done. We have joy in our hearts. We have hope. We have grace and mercy. and It sets us free. Because what is the worst thing that the, that the world and the devil could take from us? Our own lives? Well, guess what? If you're in Christ, they don't win. So it sets us free to give our lives away. It sets us free to, to continue to grow and to learn and to serve and to pray and to worship and to throw ourselves into all that we do under the Spirit's guidance and say, let's do this. It's amazing when you think about it. And so then you go like, okay, so how do we respond? Point three. The helper's going to convict. The helper's going to guide. Finally, the helper's going to glorify. Verses 14 and 15. The helper will glorify. Again, Ketty. The hallmark of the Spirit's work is that it always issues in glory for Jesus Christ. It is impossible to deny the implication that all we truly do, quote-unquote, in the Spirit, will likewise give the glory to Christ. Whether our preaching, our witness, our work, our words, our love for our neighbor, and so on, when the Spirit is in it, glory shines for the Lord, end quote. We don't reserve any glory for ourselves. Let me say that again. We do not reserve any glory for ourselves. We give it all to the triune God who sought us out and saved us by grace. That's why when we come here this morning, we don't get to say, I didn't get a ton out of worship. That's because it's not for you. I'm not here to worship you. We're here to worship the Lord and worship the triune God who sought us out. And we bring all of our glory to him and say, Lord, I don't bring anything to this. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. I worship and I glorify you and enjoy you. What's our chief end? 
shorter catechism. What's man's chief end? Man's chief end is to do what? Glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How do we do it? Lots of ways. But we glorify God. It's soli deo gloria, not soli mio gloria. We say, to you and to you alone be the glory. You get it all. We're okay with that. I don't know about you, but I don't have anything worth worshiping in myself. Nothing. I'm happy to give it to Jesus. We echo the words of Paul, a man who found he couldn't do it on his own. Here's what he said. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and, by, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, let's land the plane. The haters are going to keep hating. They just are. You say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God and the unique Savior of sinners, and there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved, and the world's going to hate you for it. The haters are just going to hate. They hate God. You doubt that? Just go back and read Romans 1. The haters are going to hate. And you know what we're going to do? Keep loving them. Keep praying for them. Keep sharing the gospel with them. Patiently, faithfully, as we trust Christ. Are we fervently praying for the Spirit to move mightily in our town? Do you ever pray, Lord, Spirit... Holy Spirit, would you please bring revival and may it start right here? Are we fervently praying for the Spirit to move mightily in our town? God's doing some great stuff in this town. It's amazing. If you just open your eyes and ask around. The Lord's doing some crazy stuff. Are we asking Him to convict and guide and glorify not just those out there, but also us? Are we praying and asking the Spirit to help us really believe for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, and to give us courage to share our faith with others. How are you sharing your faith with others? Are you at all, like even trying, and really believing that? And I'm not saying that to like scold you. I'm saying that like the Spirit will guide you and give you what you need, and trust Christ and lean into Him. You know the best way to share your faith with someone? Start with what He's done in your own heart. Just, you are not going to believe what Jesus, how Jesus has been so precious and kind to me. Just start there. It doesn't have to be that hard. Are we praying for those who revile us? Are we praying for our enemies? Are we still trusting that God is always at work and always with us? Are we praying for God to remind us of that? Spirit, remind me, you're always at work. Even when I'm asleep, you're always at work. I saw a tweet earlier this week of a guy who showed two pictures side by side. And the, the first one that was on the left looked like it was a, he was, it was a guy when he was in high school. He kind of had that like high school scowl on his face, you know, where like nothing ever makes you happy and you're just kind of frustrated with everybody. He kind of had that like, that kind of like high school, I don't want to be here and I don't like that you're taking that picture of me kind of face. Does that make sense? He kind of had that scowl on his face. 
The second one was from the present day, which showed him smiling, surrounded by his wife, kids, and extended family. So it was a contrast. He was alone, and then he had a family, and he was smiling. And here's what the caption read. He said, the first picture is me when I was an avowed atheist and hater of God. The second one is, be, is me being ordained to the gospel ministry, soli deo gloria. You think about from being a hater of God to being converted and called by the helper to the praise of Christ. That's our story too. That's what makes the gospel sweet. You used to be a hater of God and by his grace have been brought into his family and adopted and given a savior and are led. That's our story too. That's what makes the gospel sweet. Does that make sense? You see, that's not like for them. That's us. We all were like sheep who've gone astray. We all used to be haters of God, shaking our fist at him. And he met us by grace. He said, you're mine. You're mine. And we heard his voice. And the Spirit regenerated us. We never saw the world the same way again. Changes everything. Romans chapter 5, 10, 11. For if we were... If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also re rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Aren't you thankful for the work of that helper this morning who sought you out in your sin and this spirit that came and found you and convicted you and showed you what a wretch you were, but in the midst of showing you what a wretch you were, showed you what a glorious Savior you have in Christ. The two things are, are, are absolutely true. I am a sinner, and He is a great Savior. And thank you, blessed Holy Spirit, for revealing that to us because we would have never found it on our own. And we say thank you, Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Every bit of it's true. And as we read this passage, we just can't even understand when you told the disciples, it's actually for your good that I go away. Father, but now we understand as your spirit is at work, moving and changing and convicting and guiding all throughout the globe. It gives us great hope when we think about our future with you. Heaven is going to be gloriously diverse people from all nations, tribes, and tongues whom you have called to yourself by grace. What an amazing picture. We, can, we can't even imagine what you're up to now and what you will do, but we're grateful for these little peaks behind the curtain that you give us. Pray, Father, that when our faith feels weak, Lord, that you by your Spirit would remind us of whose we are, that we're united to Christ. I pray for those in this room who may not know you, O Lord, and I pray that you by your Spirit would bring conviction. Maybe for the first time that they would see their desperate need for a Savior and their own inadequacy to do it on their own. Father, I thank you for the work of the Helper, this blessed one that you sent uh, to take this work of Christ and apply it to our lives and apply it to our hearts and to sanctify us and to conform us more to the image of Christ. And Lord, we just rejoice in the blessed Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would continue to work. Lord, we do ask that you would bring revival to our nation and by your spirit. And may it start even right here. But Lord, even in our midst, Lord, please bring revival to our families, to our marriages, to our friendships, to our church. Lord, help us to be guided and led by the spirit, instructed by your word, all for your, all for your glory. 
and all because you're good. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.